Let me ask you a question to get started. Have you ever been at that point where you were so desperate for a solution that you were willing to accept just about any advice, regardless of how ridiculous that it sounded at that particular moment? Yes. Yeah, if you've ever had the hiccups for more than 10 minutes, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It is amazing what we will do to get rid of the hiccups. We will let somebody scream at us to try to scare them out of us. We will take quick sips of water to try to drown them. We will hold our breath to try to suffocate them. Some of us in the past have taken teaspoons full of sugar. I'm not sure why, to send them into sugar shock or something. I'm not sure. We'll try just about anything. In fact, if you want to have fun with a person who is dealing with the hiccups, all you have to say to that person is this. Hey, years ago, my great-grandmother used to tell me that you can get rid of the hiccups guaranteed if you'll just do X, Y, Z. And then just make something up. Make it up. I promise you most of those individuals will try that because desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, here's what I have a hunch of this morning. Some of you right now are desperate. The cause of your desperation, though, is a little bit more serious than an annoying case of the hiccups. And some of you this morning are desperate because you're dealing with a health situation that seems to have no answer. And some of you are desperate because you have this hurtful behavior going on in your life, but you just can't seem to stop. Some of you are desperate because you have a financial situation, and there seems to be no end in sight. And some of you are desperate because you're in a relationship that's turned extremely difficult and very, very disappointing. And some of you are desperate because the bottom line is you're just living this incredibly unfulfilling life. And you you hide it well. I mean, nobody would know it. When they encounter you, you can put on a good front. But deep down, deep inside, you just feel this overwhelming sense of despair. And what you need is nothing short of a miracle. And I wish with all of my power I could give you that miracle this morning. But I can't. The best I can do for you this morning is to point you to the one who can. And so that's what I want to try to do for the next few minutes. In fact, what I want to do is point you to one who then points us to the one who can do that in your life, because he spent time with him. He walked with him. He knew him. And because he was so committed to this man and what he saw in him, he wanted the rest of the world to know him. And so he wrote a book in which he shares some of the stories of the things that this man did in hopes that each and every one of us would come to believe and commit our lives to this particular man. And the story that we're going to look at this morning takes place at the end of chapter 4 of John's gospel. And at the end of that gospel, we encounter a man who is desperate. And this man is desperate because he has a son who is sick. Now, this boy doesn't just have the sniffles, and he doesn't even have a bad case of the stomach flu. He's more of the not-for-this-world-much-longer type of illness. 
And John doesn't give us any type of description about this father's care for this, his son, but it, it's not hard for me to imagine what this father must have done. Like any decent father, I'm confident that this particular father searched the entire town, his town that he was living in, Capernaum, looking for a doctor that might be able to help his boy. But he found no one. No one could, who could offer any type of seeming help. And as I think about this poor father, I have to wonder at times, like, I, it hits me, this had to have happened, that there were so many times that this father probably had a conversation with somebody in town and described what his son was going through and had somebody say to him, you know what, you ought to try this particular doctor. And though, so with great hopes, he would go see that doctor only to hear these words, wow, this is, this is strange. I've never seen anything like this. I, I, I don't really know what to do for your boy. I wonder how many times this father whispered into his son's ear, I'm so, so sorry, buddy. If there's anything I could do to take your pain, I would. I wonder how many times this father wiped the sweat from his son's boiling brow, how many times he held him close when his son broke out in cold shakes, how many times... He just wanted a solution because he was so incredibly desperate. If you're a parent, you know very well the pain that I'm talking about. Because nothing causes as much pain to a parent as seeing your child suffer. And so this father is in pain, but his pain's probably only matched by his frustration. You see, when you're used to life going your way, it's maddening on those rare occasions when it doesn't. And this particular man, he, he was a man who was used to life working out in his favor. You say, why do you say that? Well, I say that based on what John tells us about this man in verse 46 of John chapter 4. He says this, and there was a royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. The title royal official indicates that most likely this man was an official in the court of Herod Antipas. He was a man of privileged position. He was the type of man who had the financial means and also the influence or power that few others possessed. He was a one percenter. And so you know how the formula works in life. The formula works like this generally. If you have enough money and if you have enough influence or power, you get what you want. But not this time. Not this time because disease, it doesn't give a rip about how much money you have in your wallet or the title on your door. It just, it really doesn't matter. So at some point... This hurting, frustrated father catches wind that Jesus has come to Cana. The same Jesus who turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. The same Jesus who had performed some amazing miracles at the Passover festival in Jerusalem. This Jesus is in Cana, and I imagine this is exciting news to this particular man, but it's, it also has to be a moment that gives him just a little bit of pause. I mean, is it really the right move, really the right decision to travel 
all the way to Cana to see this guy named Jesus. And after all, Cana's not exactly just around the corner, or Capernaum's not just around the corner from Cana or vice versa. It's 20 or so miles away. You might be thinking, that doesn't sound so bad in our modern age. It's not that bad. But I want you to think for just a moment that you don't have a vehicle, and so this afternoon you have to make the decision, do I want to walk or do I want to ride a donkey to Morgan Hill? That's a far enough distance to make you think twice, right? So do I, do I really want to, to do that? Distance was a problem, but wasn't the biggest problem that this particular man faced. You say, what was? Well, here's the biggest problem. His employer, his boss, Herod, he wasn't particularly a big fan of those who posed any degree of threat to his popularity uh, or his power. And at this particular moment, one thing we know about Jesus is that his popularity was on an upward trend because of all these amazing things that he had done in Cana and Jerusalem. And so, what might Herod think? What might Herod do if this particular man says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go to Jesus, I'm going to ask him for help. I'm, I'm going to rely on this particular man. Those two factors alone, distance and fear, probably would have kept a, a, just an average person from doing anything under normal circumstances, not to mention there, there's no guarantee that Jesus can do anything. Not yet, at least. I mean, what if it's all hype? What if he makes the journey, takes the risk, puts his life, his job in jeopardy, all to find out that Jesus is just some huckster who's handing out great-grandmother cures for the hiccups, and that's it. These aren't normal circumstances. This is a dire situation, and this man's desperate. And so he does what any decent father in his situation would do. John chapter 4, verse 46 through 48. Once more, he, speaking of Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. The father begged Jesus. The verb tense in the original language indicates that he didn't ask once, but he begged. He asked a second time. He asked a third time. That's the fourth time, and he just kept asking Jesus. And once again, you don't have to have a real creative imagination to kind of hear this father begging Jesus at this particular moment, do you? You can hear the voice, Jesus, would you please come heal my son? Jesus, please, my boy's sick. I mean, he is really sick. Jesus, will you please travel back to Capernaum with me? Jesus, I need your help. We've tried every single doctor in town. Nobody can help. I'm begging you, Jesus, please, please, please come with me and heal my dying boy. Every second matters, Jesus. And his father's just pouring his heart out to Jesus, just with everything that's in him, and Jesus responds this way, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Wow. Not exactly a tender, compassionate response as you might expect, right? Right? 
And so why? Why does Jesus respond in such a seemingly insensitive way? And here's why, in my opinion. Here's why. Because Jesus saw something far more serious than a sick, dying child. Here's what he saw. He saw an absence of faith. He saw an absence of faith, not just in this father. He saw an absence of faith in the whole crowd of people who had gathered around him. It's indicated when he says, you people. He doesn't just point out the father, but you People, you want signs, you want wonders, you want more. You haven't gotten to a place of faith. You see, this crowd, like so many others that Jesus encountered, they go to Jesus because they want something from Him. But they don't seem that interested to truly know Him. They want another exciting miracle. They want more water turned to wine. They want a sick boy raised healed. But they didn't stop to think, what are all these signs, what are all these miracles really pointing to, and do we care? Do we believe that these miracles and these signs are pointing to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah? He is the Son of God. That's who He is. Over and over in the Gospel of John, we find Jesus challenging crowds of people who come to Him with a request, but seem to be missing this desire to know Him as a person. And each time we encounter one of these situations, we're forced to think about our own faith. We're forced to stop and ask the question, do I really want to know Jesus or do I simply want something from Jesus? Do I want to be in an intimate relationship with Jesus, or am I just trying to get out of some eternal type of punishment? Do I spend time in prayer consistently with Jesus because I want to hear His voice, I want to be in communication with Him, or do I just turn to prayer when I find out I don't really know what else to do? Do I spend time in the Word of God because I want to hear the voice of God, I want, I want His wisdom, or is it only when I don't know what else to do, I need advice, direction, and so that's when I kind of open up the Word of God. Is Jesus constantly on my mind, or do I only think of Him when I need a miracle in my life? Those are the questions that a story like this forces us to ask of ourselves. Now, the impulse of this father to go to Jesus, it may have been a bit selfish, but it was the best possible decision he could possibly make. Because as we discover, John tells us that despite Jesus' initial kind of terse response to this man, he goes ahead and he honors this man's request. John chapter 4 and verse 49 through 50, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. John goes on to tell us in verse 54 that this was the second miracle or the second sign that Jesus performed after coming back from, or from Judea to Galilee. What's this particular sign pointing to? What's the, what's the message behind it? What's John really want us to understand? I believe that the miracle points to this, that Jesus, being fully God, fully reigns over all things. He reigns over all things. By performing this miracle, it points to the fact that he reigns over disease. 
Although the city of Capernaum was a renowned leader in the medical field at that particular time, none of her highly trained, highly skilled doctors could do anything for this boy. Nothing. But Jesus could. He didn't even need to see the boy's medical chart. He just uttered a word and he healed the boy. And in doing so, he proves, he shows that he has the same authority and he has the same power as God the Father as he spoke the world into existence. That belongs to Jesus. Listen, disease may not pay a lick of bit of attention to a royal official or a head of state or a famous physician, but when Jesus speaks, disease falls in line. And I believe that's as just as true today as it has ever been. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus will always choose to heal. But what I am saying is that there is no diagnosis so bleak that Jesus can't handle it. Now, some of you have been battling illness for quite some time, and nothing's changed. You haven't been healed. And I'm sorry. And I am sure you are frustrated. I'm frustrated for you. Probably even more frustrating is for those of you who are parents and you have a child who has an illness and you've been praying and there's been no healing yet and you're frustrated and we're frustrated for you. But what I'm asking is please don't let your frustration keep you from Jesus. Please don't. He has the ability to heal you or your loved one completely. But please know this, that even if he chooses not to, he's powerful enough to see you through your most challenging days. And so I want to plead with you this morning, keep going to Jesus in faith. Never stop going to Jesus in faith. Hold on to Jesus in faith. By performing this miracle, Jesus also proves that he has full reign over distance. In the ancient culture, it was commonly believed that a miracle worker had to be present for a miracle to actually occur. But Jesus, in doing this miracle, he proves that his power is not bound by by distance. Uh, Even though he's 20 miles away, He heals this boy and he proves, you know what, that has zero impact on my ability to take care of what I want to take care of. Now, even though Jesus walked the earth some 2,000 years ago, we now reigns in the heavenly realms and not the earthly realms, he's still able to do a miraculous work in your life. You may not be able to see him, you may not be able to touch him, you may not be able to, to hear him audibly but he can still do in your life what you most need him to do. His distance, or the way it feels like distance, even though he was with us very present, it has no bearing on his ability. Whatever it needs, he can do. I've said this many times in the past. If your marriage feels dead, he can renew it. If your career is struggling, he can revive it. If your financial situation is in poor shape, 
He can restore it. If you're in the bonds of some type of struggle just with behavior, He can set you free. Whatever you need for Jesus to do, He has the ability to do it. And by healing this boy from such a great distance, he proves once again that nothing is too hard for the Lord. So I want to play it with you this morning. Go to him in faith. Keep going to him in faith. Never stop going to him in faith. And Jesus reigns over disease, and Jesus reigns over distance, but I also want you to notice that Jesus reigns over doubt. He also reigns over doubt. There were occasions, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus made the decision that because there was an absence of faith, he decided, I'm not going to do any miracles at this particular point. That didn't mean that he couldn't do miracles. He still could. And we see that in this particular story. There's no doubt that this father, he's still wrestling with some questions, some doubts about the identity of Jesus. But Jesus makes the decision to heal his son. Do you have any doubts? Do you have any doubts about who Jesus is? Do you have any doubts about his ability? Do you have any doubts about how he feels about you? Many people do. Doubt's not the real issue. It's not going to mess things up unless it keeps you from Jesus. That's when it becomes a huge problem. That's when it gets in the way. There are miracles that Jesus is waiting to perform in your life if you will turn to Him. Seek Him out. Be like this Father. Despite you don't have it all figured out, you don't know exactly to what degree you believe, you still go to Him even if it's that sense of desperation that you feel. If you don't get anything out of this sermon, please hold on to this. It's never a desperate measure to go to Jesus when you need a miracle. In fact, it is the best possible decision you can make in your life. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, Smith, listen, I've gone to Jesus. I've begged Jesus, but nothing in my life has changed. My health, my career, my finances, my marriage, it's exactly the same, if not worse. Where is my miracle? That's the question you're asking this morning. And I don't know for sure why Jesus hasn't responded to your request yet, but let me ask you this. Could it be that he's waiting for you to respond to him first? So what do you mean? Let's go back to our story, John chapter 4 and verse 50. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. With no proof whatsoever, this man took Jesus at his word. He he didn't say, well, I'm not sure. Why don't you just come with me back to Capernaum, Jesus? Let's let's just make sure. No. Jesus spoke it. This man took it in his word. And he went headed for home. If he didn't, would that have impacted Jesus' willingness to do this miracle? I don't know. I'm not sure if it would have had an impact or not. What I do know is this, is so often what we want in our life is to see the miracle before we want to obey. We want that to come first. Typically, though, it doesn't work out that way. 
Typically, what Jesus says is, you obey first, and then we'll bring about the miracle in your life. We'll bring about the change in your life. Things will get better. So I want you to think about your situation that you're in right now and what might a step of obedience really look like. You see, for some of us, we're in difficult relationships, and we keep praying God, will you please change this relationship? Will you please make this relationship better? And Jesus is saying, man, I I want to, but here's what I need. I need you to forgive. I need you to care about the other person and their wants and desires as much as you care about your own. That's what needs to happen for this miracle to take place. Some of you are struggling with a habitual behavior. that It just keeps messing up your life. It keeps getting in the way, and you're not sure why, and you can't figure it out, and you keep praying for a miracle. Jesus, will you please just take this away, this thorn in my flesh? I don't want to deal with it anymore. I want to be over it. I'm tired of it. And Jesus is saying, I want to do this. I really do. We can make this happen. Here's what I need from you first. Confess to one another. Get it out in the open, get it into light, and then we can really deal with it. And then we can bring about a miraculous work in your life. Some of you are dealing with a financial struggle. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's so hard every single month. You're thinking, where's, where's the money going to come from? You're praying, Jesus, will you please make things better, make things easier. Perhaps what Jesus is saying to you this morning is, I want to do that. I want to bring about this work in your life. I want things to be better. Here's what I need from you first. Will you please put me first in your finances? If you put me first in your finances, then we can, we can bring about this work in your life. All right, just kind of side note here. I'm not going to go long down this road. It's just kind of been weighing on me since I learned about this on Monday. I don't know what anybody in this church makes. I want to assure you of that. I have no knowledge of that whatsoever. But I did see this data this past week. I think I've got the number right. 46.9% of families in this church give less than $1,000 a year. Okay, I'm not raising that to say we need your money. I'm saying this because I think we look at our finances and it's a huge indication of the trust that we truly have in Jesus. And what he's looking for us is to put him first. And so this is probably a bigger sermon series. But I just want to ask you, please, would you spend some time in conversation as a family and in prayer and with the Holy Spirit asking what it would look like to truly place your faith in Jesus when it comes to your finances? The world may say seeing is believing, but Jesus impresses upon us that it is believing, acting in faith, that so often leads to seeing. Please hold on to that because there are some things you're desperate to see, but I'm not sure they're going to come come about until you act in faith. And why is it so important to Jesus that we act in faith first? Let's continue our story, verse 50 through 53. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. 
And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. I know these are old stories, but don't let, don't let the familiarity rob you of the sense of awe that we ought to feel at this point. It's, it's so incredibly moving. Here's this father who's begged, who's pleaded, who's heard the word of Jesus, your son's going to live, takes him at his word, and realizes at the exact moment that Jesus spoke those words, his boy got better. He got better. So often in Scripture, what we find is this, is that people see miracles. They're there. They're present. They see a miracle of Jesus. But does it change their life? No. They never come to believe. They see the miracle, but they never come to faith in Jesus. But I'm not sure. You'll have to point it out to me. I haven't found it yet. I don't think you can find a story in Scripture in which a person chose to act in faith first, like this father did, and then didn't end up coming to believe. And it wasn't just him. It was his entire household. And that's why I think Jesus wants us to come to faith or to act first, to believe first. It doesn't guarantee that a miracle will take place. It may, it may not. It may change your circumstances. It may not. Here's what I do believe is that it will impact your faith, that it will make you stronger as you follow Jesus. And so as we wrap this up, here's my question. What would it look like for you to take Jesus at his word this week? What would that really look like? And what might happen if you did? You may see a miracle. You may, you may not. But I'm guessing your faith will get stronger. Now, to those of you who are still thinking something like this, that's a nice story. But time has already run out on the miracle that I really needed. My marriage ended. My loved one passed. My dream job's gone. It's too late. Again, what I want to say to you this morning is, I'm truly sorry. Again, I, d I don't know why Jesus didn't respond to your plea and your request the same way that he did to this father in Cana. I don't. But I pray that that disappointment that you are feeling, maybe you've been carrying it around for decades, I pray that it doesn't keep you from Jesus. You see, life's cruel. It's unfair. It's unjust. It hurts. It's painful. But Jesus is good. He's good. He's so good that he made the decision that I'll go to a cross, I'll pay their sin debt, so that their worst days do not have the last word. You see, Jesus is going to perform at least one more miracle, and it may be the miracle of all miracles. Jesus is going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And when that miracle takes place, all the pain, all the losses, all the frustration, all the disappointment is going to give way to absolute, unabashed, pure joy and celebration. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we'll go to Jesus. We'll keep going to Jesus and we'll never stop going to Jesus.
If you need a miracle this morning, you need to turn to Jesus. We want to give you the opportunity to do that in community. And so our shepherds and their spouses will be gathered around the auditorium, and during the close of this song that we sing together, you can make your way to one of them, and they'd just be thrilled to spend some time in prayer with you today. Or maybe you're here this morning and you realize that I need to take a step of faith. I've been waiting to see a miracle, and then I keep thinking that if, if I just see this miracle, then I'll fully surrender my life to Jesus and baptism. That's what I'll do. I want to suggest to you this morning that no, let's reverse the order. Let's make the decision that we're going to fully surrender our life to Jesus, put Him on in baptism, have all our sins washed away, receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's do that first, and then let's see what Jesus really begins to do in our life. Again, I want to make sure you hear me clearly this morning. In no way do I want this to sound like a prosperity gospel. I am not suggesting in any way that if you do what Jesus wants you to do, you'll get health, wealth, and whatever else you want in life. That's no guarantee. What I do want you to hear is this, is that if you follow Jesus, your life will never be the same, and it'll be so much better than you can imagine. 